We don't want to be wired to know that we will be made happy by being generous. It's nice to be made happy when we're generous, but better if we don't understand the process, because if we understand the process and think about it too much, we'll stop doing good things for other people because it looks like selfishness. And welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking with uh, Chris Ryan. That's me, your host. Uh, this uh, week's episode is pretty interesting. It's John Helliwell. Um, you know, I said pretty interesting because I, I felt sheepish there. They're all interesting. Otherwise, I wouldn't do the damn things, right? Um, I'm not going to turn you on to a boring conversation. Uh, anyway, John Helliwell, very interesting guy. He's, uh, I think he teaches in the economics department at UBC. Um, but his focus is on happiness. What makes us happy? Um, and how can we cultivate those things and, uh, sort of populate our lives with things more likely to make us happy? I'm sure you've read about some of this sort of research um, that he's interested in. For example, uh, there's been a lot of media attention to the notion that experiences make us happier than things. So if you've got a thousand bucks burning a hole in your pocket, it's better to spend it on some sort of um, memorable experience than it is on a thing. Because the fact is you get used to the thing very quickly. Uh, I don't care if you're, you know, driving a Ferrari. After a while, it's just a car, you know. it's you, you, There aren't things that are so amazing that we don't very quickly get used to them. Um, you know, Louis C.K.'s famous bit uh, that I've spoken about several times about how hey, these days everything's amazing, nobody's happy. Well, that's why. Um, you know, you get the latest iPhone or, you know, whatever, and, and within a week you're going to be pissed off that it, you know, it's not acting fast enough. It's, you know, sometimes it misses a call. Sometimes, oh, it doesn't do this perfectly or that perfectly. Well, you get used to it. But experiences, on the other hand, uh, last much longer. The fascination with the experience lasts much longer in our minds. And one of the things that's really interesting about experiences is, is that even when the experience itself sucks, and sometimes especially when the experience sucks, the memory of it uh, can have increased value. So, you know, if you take that $1,000 and you spend it on um, some sort of, you know, device that doesn't work well, uh, you're just going to have buyer's remorse. Whereas if you spend that thousand bucks, let's say on, um, you know, uh, two weeks in Bermuda, uh, well, that's probably not what you're going to get for a thousand bucks. Let's say a couple days in Bermuda. Uh, and there's a hurricane as there has been recently in Bermuda, you know, that really ruins your vacation. But now you've got a really interesting story. 
And the fact that you were in some hurricane shelter and then you met some really interesting people that you wouldn't have met otherwise, um, you know, if you'd just been in the hotels doing your normal thing and maybe you form a last, you know, lasting friendships with them or whatever. But my point is that experiences uh, have ways of being valuable even and sometimes especially if they're negative experiences. Um, And objects don't have that quality. So keep that in mind next time you got some extra money. This morning I took my car, talking about cars, uh, I have a Honda. I took it in because there was a recall um, that you may have heard about in the news. The airbags have been killing people, which is really interesting. I was almost hesitant to to get it fixed because I thought, you know, I hope that when I die, it's an interesting death that I'm not just another guy with, you know, cancer and an auto accident or whatever. Um, And that's something I thought about uh, when I had that whole scorpion experience in Guatemala, which I've spoken about at length elsewhere. If you haven't heard that story, uh, you can go to my website, chrisryanphd.com. I think it's on the homepage. Um, the, I told the story for the risk podcast and they sort of produced it with interesting sound effects and stuff. But anyway, uh, when I had that experience, one of the things I thought about was, Hey, at least this is an interesting death, you know, uh, cause we're all going to die. So, you know, it's kind of cool to do it in an interesting way. At least it gives your friend something to laugh about and, uh, you know, remember you fondly by, and I, I, when I was taking the car in this morning, I was thinking, wouldn't it be kind of a funny, you know, ironic way to die? Like you have a little fender bender in the parking lot at the grocery store and your airbag goes off and the airbag kills you, you know, killed by the airbag. There's, there's some interesting dynamic in that. <clears throat> yeah, the thing that was supposed to save you ends up killing you. So in some ways, it's the uh, an image of the modern world, I think. Uh, I won't rant about that too much, but <laughs> that's that's the, my state of thinking these days. Uh, anyway, when the car was being fixed, I, I went out. Uh, the guy told me there was a place to get breakfast down the road a bit. Yeah, it was called the Pig and Pancake. Pig N pancake. So I was walking over to the pig N pancake to get breakfast. And, um, you know, I, it was like he said, it's like, oh, it's just down the street a little bit. And you turn and it's by the Walmart or whatever. And I, I walked down and, man, it was like, well, it's not here. I got to the next block. And then there's a big parking lot and that. Eh. And it was a long walk. Anyway, so I had uh, had breakfast there. And then uh, I was walking back to the, the auto place. And it felt like uh, I got back to the auto place in like a third of the time it took me to get to go to the pig and pancake. And um, so I started, I was thinking about like how it journeys seem to take longer when you're not sure where you're going. The journey back always seems so much shorter. And, uh, you know, when you like when you know where you're going, then you're not focused on the uncertainty of it. You're not like wondering where it is. You're not wondering how much further it's going to be. It's you know how much further it's going to be, and so you don't think about it, and then it ends up taking 
much less time. So seemingly subjective time. Um, and then I was applying that to, to life and, and, you know, the travel years and the years now where I'm doing the same thing every day. And I've talked about that before, how this idea that, uh, when there's a lot of variety and, um, surprise and unexpected, um, elements in your life, that life seems to take longer. It seems to last longer because time really is a measure of change. And so if there's no nothing really changing in any uh, tangible way in your life, it sort of seems like time stops in a way, but you're still aging. You're just not feeling it the same, you know? I mean, I guess it's like the difference between floating down a calm stretch of river or, you know, shooting the white water. You're much more alive and much more aware of what's going on in the white water than you are when you're just floating down a lazy river. I've been reading uh, this book uh, called Anti-Fragile by uh, Nassim Taleb. And uh, it's interesting. He's a very combative guy, obviously. Uh, he wrote The Black Swan as well, which I haven't read, but um, I hear it's it's quite good. But he's um, talking about randomness and how um, randomness actually makes a more stable, robust, anti-fragile system. And, um, you know, he and I are thinking along the same lines a lot uh, in terms of the modern world and how the modern world is set up to protect us from randomness. And yet randomness is really what we need in order to feel alive. So it's as if as if we've like dredged all the rivers to remove the the rocks, the obstacles, the white water. And so now the rivers, we you know, we've dam- dammed them all quite literally. And so the rivers are all placid and sluggish and slow moving. And as we float down these rivers, we're safe. But we're also zoned out because nothing's happening. You know, we're bored. So we take our antidepressants and we, you know, get our silly little hobbies or whatever, you know, kill time. Think about that expression to kill time. No, time's killing you, man. Anyway, uh, I thought I'd read a little passage from the book that I found interesting. He says, um, if I could predict what my day would exactly look like, I would feel a little bit dead. Further, this randomness is necessary for true life. Consider that all the wealth of the world can't buy a liquid more pleasurable than water after an intense thirst. Isn't that true, man? Isn't that true? If you're really thirsty, you don't want champagne, right? You want water. If you're really thirsty, nobody, you know, crawling up out of the desert says, Michelob, you know, it's water is what they want. Few objects bring more thrill than a recovered wallet lost on a train. Further, in an ancestral habitat, we humans were prompted by natural stimuli, fear, hunger, desire, that made us work out and become fit for our environment. Consider how easy it is to find the energy to lift a car if a crying child is under it, or to run for your life if you see a wild animal crossing the street. Compare this to the heaviness of the obligation to visit the gym at the planned 6 
p.m. and be bullied by some personal trainer, unless, of course, you're under an imperative to look like a bodyguard. Also, consider how easy it is to skip a meal when the randomness in the environment causes us to do so because of lack of food, as compared to the discipline of sticking to some 18-day diet. That's the truth. So much of what we're trying to do in the modern world is to replicate the randomness of the ancestral world. And that, my friends, is the thought I will leave you with as we uh, go into this conversation with John Heliwell. Very interesting guy. Teaches at UBC in uh, Vancouver. And uh, I had this conversation with him uh, a while back. But I hope you find it very relevant and interesting. And, uh, oh, wait, I have to say some things here. Uh, There's a new subreddit for people who listen to this podcast and want to chat about the episodes or the music or whatever the hell you want to say. It's tangentially speaking, altogether, no space. So uh, I encourage you to go check that out. I drop in and answer people's questions and, uh, you know, just engage as much as I can. Um, Also, if you're interested in checking out um, ethical non-monogamy, there's a community website that I've been involved with. It's up and running, Kotango, K-O-T-A-N-G-O dot com. Encourage you to check that out. Even if you're, you know, uh, you're just interested theoretically, there are people there talking about stuff. We're going to have an Ask the Experts uh, thing going on there for a while. So there's a lot of interesting stuff to go to do there. I started um, set up a thing where you can sign up uh, for my email list. I'll send out occasional updates on what's going on. If there's a new book coming out or I'm, you know, on some TV show or something, Um, you can find that at chrisryanphd.com. I think there's a box on the homepage and also on the tangentially speaking page. I'll never sell your email or anything like that, of course. And uh, that's it. So thanks again to Carsey Blanton, of course, for Smoke, Smoke Alarm, which still ends the podcast. And I'll, I'll bring it back to the intros uh, occasionally. And uh, to Basin and Range for the funky, uh, funky music at the beginning as well. You can check them out at CarseyBlanton.com or uh, at BasinAndRangeBand.com. Thanks. See you next week. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm here with Dr. John Helliwell. Did I pronounce that? It's Helliwell. Uh, who's a professor at UBC and a world-renowned expert in the... Well, how, how, what's the best way to say this? The interaction of money and happiness or the no, economics of happiness? It's, it's, in a sense, it's really neither, unless you take a view of economics that's <clears throat> the one that we used to start with in principles courses, which it's economics is the, uh, uh, supposed to be the science for showing you how to make the best use of scarce resources. Right. Uh, so in that sense, uh, it's economics. But in, in terms of what people in the press and outside think of economics, that it's about buying and selling things. That's not what I study. I study um, and an increasingly large interdisciplinary group around the world is studying is uh, what does make a good life. It's getting back and putting empirical dress on Aristotle's thinking and propositions of a couple of millennia ago. And by and large the way we tap into people's views and lives in order to provide us the raw material 
is, as Aristotle suggested, just ask them. <laughs> was that Aristotle? Was, did he? Was it also Aristotle who said the unexamined life is not worth living? Uh, was that, that doesn't Plato? sound like Aristotle, but it's uh, it could have been. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, are are you trained as an economist? Is that your when someone asks you what you are? Is that what you say? Oh, well, I mean, you 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 pick up little bits of training here and there. Yeah. It turns out that over the years, I've uh, relied more and more on a, a, a fair range of the philosophy. I took as a right. specialist as part of an undergraduate mixed degree in Oxford many years ago. Oh, interesting. Um, but my uh, doctoral work was in economics, and I'm, I dabbled in all the social sciences. It's only in the last 15 years, spurred by this interest in uh, subjective well-being, that I've got deep into psychology. So now a lot of my <clears throat> colleagues are psychologists, and a lot of the journals we write for are psychological journals. Well, congratulations to you for managing to chart a very interdisciplinary career. I know that's not easy in academics. It is not, and we have uh, been enormously favored um, by being chosen by the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research to set up an interdisciplinary team to do this, and they carry enough prestige and, uh, that when we ask people in different disciplines to join almost universally they said yes please mm. and all of them have changed their lives as a consequence because it's pulled people out of their narrower disciplinary ruts and brought them regularly into contact with high-level people from other disciplines focusing on big topics of common interest. So with little luck we're helping to break down those silo walls that are making science tricky these days. Yeah, it's one of many reasons I chose, I decided not to pursue a career in academia was was the fact that it felt that it was, how to say, it, it felt like the fir like I was floating down a river, and the further down the river I got, the narrower it was and the faster it went. And it, I, I wanted to swim in lots of different directions. I, you know, I was interested, as, as it sounds like you were, in, in philosophy and literature and economics. And, you know, pretty much everything is interesting when it's looked at the right way, you know. And... Uh, yeah, that, that narrowing of focus, which I understand is probably a consequence of, of uh, increased knowledge that you just have to focus narrowly in order to, to get to the cutting edge of whatever it is you're working on. Um, it just felt in intrinsically wrong to me somehow. On a well, you want to marry, I think, the necessity of, of being as technical as you have to be to understand a cell structure or a, 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 sure. a, a dig or whatever it is you're doing, but you nonetheless want to keep a broad view so that you <clears throat> learn the wisdoms, uh, wisdom of others that's relevant. A couple of times when I've been involved in this research over the last 15 years, I've managed to get research fellowships for a term or two back in Oxford. Uh, and it's very good that way because the colleges themselves, these are the sort of 25 or so colleges within the university, have their own social structure. Right. And they cover all the disciplines. So the people you meet at lunch and dinner are 
are going to be from quite separate disciplines yeah. and you get to know them and then you then acquire yourself a technical question in another discipline you know who to go to they right. may not have the answer but they know the person who will so yeah. at one degree of separation you can start making trust-driven responsible interdisciplinary connections so if you're going in to see a friend of a friend and you ask them what sounds like a stupid question in psychology and uh, they won't just brush you off thinking it's a stupid idea they'll try and find some sense right. or something sensible that they can tell you and try and make themselves useful to your problem that's worth the price of admission yeah and then some i, I like the term trust driven that's a, a very important concept um in so many different ways you know, one of the things that that I'm no economist. I I uh, uh, I don't think I've taken a math class since high school, actually. Um, but I'm I'm interested in in economics in as much as it relates to what you're talking about, well being and and deep philosophical questions and how human beings interact with one another and institutions and things like that. Um, and one of the the questions I keep coming up against is. In Sexaton, we wrote about how uh, human social organization in pre-agricultural societies was uh, organized around the concept of, concept of sharing, and uh, how post-agricultural societies are organized around the concept of hoarding and private property as opposed to public property, which gets replicated. That you know, and of course, maybe it's just my perspective, but it feels to me that that is a fundamental turning point in the the evolution of our species socially and not biologically so much, although it's got uh, implications there. But the idea that you are in a hunter-gatherer band, interacting with people you trust because you know them, right? Are you, f are you familiar with Dunbar's number? Of course, yeah. Is he at Oxford or Cambridge? He's at I always, Oxford, yes. I always I confuse them. With them yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that seems to be such a fundamental issue. Do you know and trust the people you're dealing with? Even if you don't trust them, you know them. You're at least thinking of them as human beings as opposed to abstractions on an institutional level. Human behavior changes so much when we reach that threshold. I think it was Stalin who said, uh, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. You know, it, yeah. it's really true. Um, anyway, so the trust, the idea of trust-driven is such, that's a beautiful way to put it. it uh, do you find that in economics, that, that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the difference in the way we interact with each other as abstractions versus as individuals? I'm not sure about what disciplines the, the issue arises in. We certainly discover um, in those surveys that properly measure trust, and it's the trust perceptions that people have that really matter, um, that in a variety of dimensions it's enormously important to their uh, life satisfaction, yeah. trust in neighbors, trust in colleagues, trust in supervisors at work, trust in police, and especially the human measures of trust, trust in people, the trust in an institution or so on, uh, matters much less systematically mm -hmm. than <clears throat> the trust in individuals. 
Although trust in police is, in a sense, trust in the institution. Uh, Yes, it is. That it'll uh, monitor itself. Only a good police force will uniformly deliver you people in uniform whom you can trust. Exactly. But it is the... It is the belief that you can trust those people that uh, really matters, and enormously so. So that, for example, um, to work in a workplace where trust in management is one point higher on a 10-point scale. Uh, So that's, you know, not even a standard deviation of that distribution. It can happen quite a bit. Um, Is the equivalent to you in life satisfaction of a one-third change in income. (laughs) Uh, And yet, people who work in workplaces and people who run them act as though that weren't true. And uniformly um, uh, play fast and loose with human connections of a sort that can either build or more frequently in the last 20 or 30 years erode and destroy trust. A variety of uh, uh, procedures and devices and protections and rules and regulations that were brought in post Enron, post this, post that, in order to recreate trust have in fact further diminished it. Why is that? Well, it's because well, if you think about it, uh, how do you think about the organization that puts a lot of stupid rules on you that you have to fill in to claim your taxi fare? or whatever it may be. It tells you a message. It says, they don't even trust me to they tell don't trust me. what I've put out yeah. of pocket. So why should I trust them? Yeah. And furthermore, they have hired me to do this job. And I end up having spent 10% of my time filling in forms that have nothing to do with the job. Just because they don't trust me. Uh, well, that creates unhappiness, it creates disaffection, and it further erodes trust. So it's the inability, for example, to treat something that goes wrong as responsibility and caused by specific individuals. Uh, and then, in a sense, blaming them on everybody who does a travel form or everybody who comes from a right. particular country is suspect because some of their countrymen once did something bad. The one well, bad apple. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, it then starts creating the kind of walls that the bigger society uh, is destroyed by. Well, that's a real conundrum, isn't it? Uh, you know, if if the, let's say we have a company uh, that's trying to uh, root out corruption, trying to ensure against corruption. So they institute a bunch of these rules and regulations so that they can monitor where the, the expense account uh, expenditures and things like that and the phone calls and the computer use and so on. So that creates an atmosphere of distrust. And yet the whole purpose behind it is to establish a base of behavior so that we can trust one another. So what's how do we get out of that? By recognizing that what you do in order to recover or build trust itself is crucially determinant of it. And if you don't understand the nature of humankind when you're making these rules, you'll be rule-driven rather than behavior-driven. You'll be uh, rule-driven rather than principle-driven. The important point is the principle. Uh, Yeah, but how do you enforce principle? You don't enforce it. That's the trick. It isn't done with a heavy hand. It's done with a light hand. I was fortunate a few weeks ago to be invited to talk to a lot of senior executives and political figures in Denmark, which was very instructive because Denmark routinely uh, comes out of these 
quality of life surveys by their own evaluations, top of the world. Yeah. And so you then watch while they run their organizations, and they run them, they're very flat organizations, high levels of communication between the levels, uh, low levels of bureaucratic uh, controls, not high levels. One of the most inspiring talks at this business summit um, I, I attended was um, by the Indian CEO of a Danish company that had been established and operating in India for now 50 years. And they were a Danish company operating in India with all that that connotes. So they were neither accepting nor paying bribes. They were taking part in no activities where there were any side payments or any irregularities. And uh, the lovely thing about it was the extent to which they had succeeded in doing this. And it's not everyone knew what it meant to work for that company. There was no detailed rules required about it. Mm. They knew what the Danish way was. They knew what corruption was and it wasn't. They knew that sure. if they worked there, they wouldn't do it. If they did it, they'd be gone. But that's the point. They wouldn't have wanted to work there in the first place. Uh, and it's, of course, being recognized that it is, in fact, a successful strategy. Now, they're involved in a business where high quality is all important and long life is important of the thing. I mean, there are places where trust really matters. Mm. Where trust matters most is when you have to rely on the person giving you the service, whether they're a doctor or a manufacturer or a lawyer or anything else, to tell you the real honest story that's in your long-term best interest. They can sell you something with a nice outside and a good sticker and a low price, and this is increasing the way retailing is done, mm -hmm. and uh, they're not going to tell you that in eight months it'll be broken. No, of course not. In They'll a high-trust environment, they wouldn't dream of letting you take such a thing away. Yeah out of the store. They value the relationship more than they value the sale. Right. And that's critical. And that's, of course, that's what you need for a, a, a long, successful life as an individual. It's what you need, obviously, for firms and individuals love working in places like that. Isn't there an essential contradiction between the interests of a corporation and the the interests of individuals as you're describing them? In other words, and this is this is an argument I've had with my father for fifty some years now. <laughs> no, I'm I'm fifty. Couldn't have been arguing when I was one. Uh, for uh, since since I could argue, my father worked in public relations for a lot of his life for large corporations, and. Um, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, so I'm sort of, you know, I breathe the air of skepticism about government, about corporations and so on. And it just, I, I, I fundamentally feel the corporations are predators uh, in the ecosystem in which I live, that um, they, they don't. How can I? I'm, I'm not explaining this well. They're not interested in my happiness. They're interested in my money. And that's that's the nature of that entity, that organism. And so if they can lie to me to get my money, they will. If they can sell me a product that's poisonous and their profit margins high enough to justify the potential lawsuits like the famous Pinto case where gas tanks blow up. Well, what, what would it cost us to you know pay off? They will. And so there's... As much as I, I 
uh, admire and uh, hope that that the sort of research that you're doing leads to more ethical corporations. I can't help feeling that there's something innately uh, not unethical, but aethical, non-ethical in corporations. Probably aethical in a sense that the corporation uh, is simply a legal form within which people can gather together and undertake activities um, in different forms, either working for it or lending money for it or investing in it or regulating or whatever. There's nothing either good nor bad in the corporate form. What you then describe in your alienation with the form is that you have either read about or seen enough examples of bad corporate activity to lead you to think it's typical. Uh, Now, would you want to work in such a place? No. Would you, if you had a choice, buy from such a firm? No. Would you really want to invest in them if you could invest in something else that would also look after your money reasonably well, but make you feel good when you came home at the end of the day that this money was earned honestly producing good products and sold to people. At our level, a corporation has to deal with individuals and what they want. What the research shows is that almost universally, people want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. They want to feel good about themselves. They certainly want to feel good about their colleagues and the people they work for. And they're going to have a lot more fun dealing with customers that are going to come back than ones who aren't. Uh, And once they start breaking down those barriers of thinking about the us and them, so the corporation isn't a them, if you're working there or buying there or investing there, it's us. And if it's not doing the job very well, then you want to make sure it's done better. But it's immediately apparent. And the Indian case I was mentioning, he said there's, it's still true that most of the marriages in India are arranged marriages. He said, if it comes up on a website, because increasingly there's electronic transmission of availability uh, in, in, uh, for uh, married people, <laughs> yeah. uh, that the person works for uh, this company, um, they get deluged with mm. spouses. Because if you've got somebody who really does work in a high trust environment where such behavior is sought and rewarded, uh, you're, they're going to make a pretty good spouse too, right? Because trust begins at home. Right, right. And they know they didn't get the job in the Danish corporation through a family connection or some sort of nepotism. Exactly. Well, yeah. it tells you something they're talented, about their values. They're talented, trust. And yeah. it, it tells you about what kind of person they are. Yeah. Uh, well, if you're going to share your life with somebody, you'd rather have a good person than a bad person. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Just to... to, to um, harass you a little bit more with <laughs> this idea that I, I, it sounds to me you're saying that a corporation, there's nothing good nor bad in a corporation. Now, I'm kind of, I come from a perspective related to what we were saying earlier about scale and the way we interact with each other as known individuals versus abstractions. Because a corporation is an abstraction, and many corporations only deal really with other corporations, they're suppliers to corporations and so on. Um, I kind of, I go uh, a little further to the point where I feel that there is something inherently evil in uh, corporations or evil in the sense that opposed to human um, interests. Uh, 
for example, you, we're, we're sitting here in your beautiful kitchen looking out on uh, the, the bay. Is this a bay or is this an English inlet bay. or English bay? Yeah. Uh, and there are oil tankers out here. Is there a good oil company? I know they spend millions of hundreds of millions of dollars trying to convince us that they're good, that BP is the, you know, they've got their new green logo or I don't know who that is. Uh, you know, and Exxon is always telling us they care and, you know, but that's, those are all lies. They don't care. The only thing they really care about is maximum profit margin, uh, the cheapest extraction methods they can do at the highest price. And in other words, it's impossible for a corporation to care. The people who work there can care, as you say. But I don't, is there a good oil company? If, if, if a company is an abstraction, it can't care, because caring is a human characteristic. Right. There's a sense in which you can't have an idea or an abstraction that lives without either co-opting or being supported by the individuals who work for it and, 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 and invest in it. Uh, there is almost the word the more the less popular or the less perceived to be ethical an industry it is the less likely you are to believe that it's people by good good people doing good things working together in good ways and uh, it's, it's streaming I mean it's, nonetheless you'll find even within the um, vilest of industries and the mafia and the drug trade are clearly among those. Um, there is indeed uh, codes of conduct and honor and trust sure. that are extraordinarily important. In fact, personal trust uh, is even more important when there's no light of, uh, of, of public process and procedure and, and contracts. Of course, that's one of the reasons why all these rules are brought in is in order to provide an alternative for um, that personal trust. Uh, the seed, I think, of basic truth behind what you're, the emotions you're reporting is that um, the closer you are and the more complete your human relations are with other people, the more inclined you are to trust them, the less inclined you are to do something that is engaged their interests or your common interests, and the more likely you are to be generous to them and for them. So these basic human emotions, uh, which are universal of generosity and, and trust, and are rewarded by feeling happier when they're finding them, feeling happier when they're instituting them. Mm. It's natural to do that within uh, groups smaller than the Dunbar number or uh, whatever your species is, you start close in. The trick, and here's where human beings have the capacity, although they haven't always used it right, um, to synthesize, because inevitably, the things we do day to day are affecting people in other countries, generations not unborn. We can't commune with them and get to know them personally, but we can adopt a broader set of values that in fact encompasses their livelihoods mm. and their futures within what we want. But that takes uniquely human capacities for synthesizing and establishing yeah. what is often called a social identity, a narrow social identity, the close-in 
ones like a, a family or a kin group. They're almost come out of the womb with them uh, and they're, they're established. Babies react to smiles. Babies are immediately generous to other babies right. without any training. And it's the groups within they in within which they live and demonstrate these things that happen naturally. Okay, that's a long introduction for the point that the more global is an enterprise, the further away it is from you, the harder it is for you to feel, unless you've been socialized that way, that the person on the other end of the phone or the deal has really got your interests in mind. Yeah, and the more easier it is to blame them for anything that's going wrong. Uh, we see it in traffic. People wouldn't react in such an unfriendly way on foot as they do in a vehicle. The same thing happens in trade in a local market versus trade in a bigger market versus going to some extreme like a Walmart or, yeah. a, or an Exxon. Uh, and the further away you get, then the more your reactions to their principles and their behavior are going to be based on what you read in the newspaper and what you hear from your friends. Well, uh, typically that often, uh, when things are distant, are, are not very good. And it's in part, our information system isn't very good. We're used to hearing bad-mouthing and bad things. Um, we, routinely, for example, we find when we do the experiments that people are much more trustworthy than other people think they are. Oh, really? Let me give you a specific example. Uh, and this started because reader, Reader's Digest at one time about 20 years ago dropped wallets in a number of capitals around oh, the world. I just read the uh, report on that recently. Anyway, yeah. um, yeah. in, when we were starting to develop a big Canadian survey and we were putting in trust questions, yeah. we put in the standard social trust question, which was, it's asked all over the world, in general, do you think people can be trusted or alternatively you can't be too careful in dealing with people? But, you know, that question gets a high of 90% uh, percent, or I think the first rather than the second in Norway and Peru, it's 5 or 10%, you know, huge differences across mm. countries. Well, when we were setting up the survey, one of the cynical surveyors said, that's too vague. We don't know what people mean by that. Let's give them something really specific. So we replicated the Reader's Digest question, only we added a couple of details, and we said, if you dropped a wallet with $200 in it, how likely is it, this on a scale of 1 to 10, to be returned if found by A, a neighbor, uh, B, a stranger, or C, a police officer, or D, a clerk in the local store? And uh, we actually got Gallup to ask some of these questions in their world poll at one time until they got to a country where people didn't carry wallets and then they, they lost hope uh, and they gave up too soon. But we did get this question asked in some very large Canadian surveys run by Statistics Canada. So we now know for 20 or 30,000 people all over the country how likely they think their wallet is to be returned. Well, fast forward to uh, a couple of years ago when uh, the Toronto Star uh, newspaper decided to replicate the Reader's Digest experiment in Toronto and they dropped 20 wallets all over Toronto. Of course, they, since they were an artificial owner, the same artificial owner owned the cards, name on the cards and phone number and cash. Uh, it was, by definition, found by a stranger. So we were able to compare mm. the actual return of the wallets with what people in precisely those Toronto neighborhoods where the wallets were dropped thought the likelihood of their wallet would be to be returned. 
the chances of the actual wallet return being what it was and people's beliefs being right about what it would be are, are one in many billion. The answers were that different. On average, people in Toronto thought there'd be about one quarter chance of their wallet being returned with money intact. In fact, 16 out of the 20 wallets were returned. Mm. So what that means is, through the kind of cynicism that says there can't be a good oil company or this or that, people assume that other people are going to act selfishly. And of course, returning a wallet is much more than just being trustworthy, right? It's stepping out. It's not just not stealing right. or not doing something wrong. It's, it's, it's acting, actually yeah. acting out, taking time out of your busy day to pick up that wallet and do something to get it back into the hands of somebody whom you don't even know, yeah. whose life you're trying to make better in an unselfish way by doing that. Yeah. So it's a very strong measure of social connection. Of course, you feel good when you do it. And of course, you feel wonderful if your wallet is returned. But the sad thing is that all those people in Toronto are living in a place where almost all the wallets would be returned, but they don't know it. Mm. And so they're, ha they're unhappier because of that, because we've got other kinds of measures where we know actually what the level of trustworthiness of others is, and we know how trusting people are. What makes them happy or not is how trusting they are. Uh, if trustworthiness is out there, but they don't have the evidence for it, then it doesn't make them happy. So yeah. it, it, people have to be trustworthy, yes, if it's an unthinking trust uh, and everybody around isn't trustworthy and eventually you'll come a cropper. But we live in a modern world now where in fact the actual trustworthiness of our neighbors in the societies in which most of us, uh, your listeners, uh, will be living um, is higher than we think it is, which is too bad. So that, what that suggests is because people's trust in each other is what governs whether they reach out to them. Mm. In a small town, you, you talk to everybody you pass in the street. In a small company, you all eat lunch at the same table uh, and are happier for it. The happiest people in Canada are in Newfoundland, which is the mm. least urbanized and, and most familial. Mm. of all the parts in Canada, and you get steadily lower averages you get further west. Why? Because, of course, we're bigger and we're scale. more mobile. It's yeah. scale and turnover. And so it's harder in a, in a big, highly urbanized world to build these kind of human-level connections. I couldn't agree more. Make life happy. And, and uh, you know, related back to my research in, in prehistory versus post-agricultural societies, that is the issue. When you've got a hunter-gatherer society, the scale is always necessarily small. And that's the world that we evolved in. The, those are the hungers, the, the emotional and psychological hungers that we have are from that time you know that that's when these this need for community and trust and these things that you're describing uh is innate in us as a species and yet because of agricultural society and the 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 sedentary settlements and all the things that you know came about a hierarchy and vast inequalities between the top and the bottom which are getting worse and worse all the time now um we, we've created a world uh, in which it's like we've created a really low-quality zoo for ourselves. 
You know, yes. we're, we're not even in a San Diego zoo. Well, we're in the see, Calcutta Zoo. Just like people can't believe their wallets would be returned when really they could. In fact, the zoo isn't as low quality as you're suggesting it is. Um, if you actually look at a lot of the numbers, people say, oh, gosh, you are getting it. Life is getting nastier and more brutish and more short and more unequal. Mm. You look at the inequalities that were existing in the pre-industrial revolutionary times in the countries where they measure these things. They were much bigger than they are now. The gap well, between feudal the Europe and the poor was much bigger. We didn't have quite as high quality statistics. There was in yeah. the first part of the last century, and it was the period Robert Putnam describes as the whole growth of civic America, first 70 years of the last century, there was big, big, big drops in inequality. Mm -hmm. And the United States is an outlier on these things in terms of the increase in inequality. Of the OECD countries, only two have had really big increases in inequality over the last 20 years. Oh, really? The United States and Mexico. Um, other countries, it's been a mo much, much more modest. Um, there's been a troubling sign of it being there, but it's not a, a really big one. Of course, in my trade, which is the study of happiness, um, we don't care so much about the distribution of income. The inequality that really matters is inequality and happiness. Mm -hmm. Because some people don't need a lot of income and more power to them to be happy. So why should we worry about them if they have a low income and living a happy life in a rural community growing their own food and whatever? Um, yeah. It's the, it's. It's the unhappiness that you want you this gap between a whole lot of very happy people and a lot of unhappy people. And to pay attention to that gap is the only human thing to do. The beauty about paying attention to that gap is uh, happiness is one of those things that I can increase your happiness without damaging mine. Yeah. Often in the material world, if you're poor and I'm rich, the only way we can immediately solve it is either work together and make us both richer, but usually it's taking money from the rich and giving it to the poor. Mm -hmm. That's a bad solution uh, in human terms because, of course, people don't like being the recipient of handouts and they don't like having their money taken away for something they're not controlling. They like the freedom to make their own decisions. They like the freedom to, to make their own lives. The best thing you can do for somebody who's poor and disenfranchised is to enfranchise them and give them the capacities and the opportunities to do things for themselves, but even more importantly, to do things for others. If you look at the inner city uh, groups that really work, it's the ones where they're looking after each other. Yeah. The it, mental patients who are mm -hmm. doing best are the mental patients who are helping other mental patients. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, that's no question about that. Uh, isn't that, in fact, one of the, the most reliable predictors of happiness is w the extent to which you're helping other people? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and, there, and there's a diminishing returns. We're talking about income inequality. I know that at the very bottom of the income scale, um, income, lack of income affects happiness in a negative way. Uh, but above a certain point, I don't remember what it is, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 per year per individual – it, it, more income doesn't seem to matter at all in terms of um, life satisfaction. In these very large surveys we're now having, um, the one qualification to all this is we don't measure income at the very top very well because these population-based samples, there aren't that many really rich and they're not 
Sold and they're hiding their assets in the sample. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so yeah. that, you know, the, the famous 1%, they don't get in to 1% of the sample. Right. Um, and even then, they wouldn't be very many. So it's hard to do the calculations. But broadly speaking, in the Gallup World Poll, the effective income uh, is proportionate. So you double your income, uh, you, 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 you go up the same number of points uh, in happiness. And that same number seems to be true for most countries and at most income levels. So the sloping off exists in, in dollar terms, but in proportionate terms, it doesn't slope off so much. Uh, that's what we're finding, uh, with the qualification that at some level it must, but we're, we're, it's not very clear to find evidence of that in these life evaluations. In emotions, it happens earlier. Uh, but in the life evaluations, there's still a continuing uh, effect of income. If we divide the rich countries and the poor countries, the most striking difference where the Maslowian hierarchy comes into play is not that income ceases to matter, but all the things that are beyond survival start to matter more. Hmm. Uh, so your freedom, um, the return to generosity, the value of having someone to count on, um, they all rise um, among once you've been moved away from privation's door. Right. And another way of rationalizing, now this diminishing margin utility of income as it's described in the Econ 1 textbooks. Uh, some evidence for that still exists even in the Gallup data in that the effect of income on your happiness drops. If you put in another question that says, have you been hungry? Have you gone to bed hungry in the last month? If, if you just look at the people who haven't gone to bed hungry in the last month, income matters much less to them than the people who have. In other so, words, in the other ones words, who have the income exactly, value are less than, exactly. yeah, Exactly. So once you're out of yeah. privation, it does matter less. Yeah. Um, but it's not a striking uh, slope off. But what does matter is that your priorities change. Um, but of course, uh, income doesn't matter as much to people's happiness as they think it does. Yeah. So they keep making these Faustian bargains where they trade off family and friends and time. Uh, for a, a bigger car or a bigger house. Yeah, which are, if you know, ironically enough, these, these are all things that are marketed to us as ways to increase the number of people who will want to be with us. And, yes, uh, so that's you know. an unfortunate... That drives some of your cynicism about corporations, typically, because advertising is usually on behalf of a product that's produced by a corporation. And uh, the people who are hired to do the advertising are trying to increasing, of course, the science of happiness is being invaded by marketing experts. Oh, they'll get in everywhere. Saying, Aha, if yeah. that's what makes you happy, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that we can do that, yeah. or indeed I may try and deliver it to you. Now, if they do deliver it to you, well, then you want to produce, you, you'd like to buy a product that in fact genuinely could make you happier. Heroin. Other product. Well, that it's the real work. thing. Hey, well, it turns out it isn't, <laughs> as you might guess. Um, Cocaine. Uh, none of the pills are, because of course they lack, um, even there's a big 
philosophical discussion about would you take a happiness pill if there was a happiness. But the point is, you, of course you wouldn't, because a critical part of the happiness is the ch you meeting a challenge. Well, if you've just taken a pill, there's no challenge to be met. And, well, uh, ecstasy. I, 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 well, what, it's addictive. Well, ecstasy isn't, uh, not, not uh, chemically in any sense. But uh, I, I've worked with... Um, uh, people who do, do research in drugs quite yes. a bit and ecstasy is about as close as you can get to a happiness pill i think um luckily it's exhausting so people wouldn't take it every day you couldn't sure. and, and also the effects wear off well and ask a person who was an ecstasy addict or managed to get themselves on a regular supply yeah and ask them aristotle's question about how good is your life as a whole? Yeah. Are they going to say it's good? No, of course they're not. Well, and it isn't. <laughs> depends when you ask. The funny thing about ecstasy is they take these pills, or I've, I've taken ecstasy as well, take these pills, and a lot of times they take them in settings where there is this horrible music playing. <laughs> and I always say to people, if you have to take a drug to listen to that music, it's by definition bad music. Why, <laughs> you know, why wouldn't you listen to good music that's good even when you're not high on something? Uh, unbelievable. Um, anyway, we won't get off into ecstasy. That's, that's a whole other conversation. Uh, you talked about future generations. I, I, it was interesting... Um, I think it's the Iroquois who uh, had a federation and a very interesting political organization, which is replicated, uh, some people have argued, in the United States governmental system with the checks and balances, because there were um, representatives, I think there were seven tribes and representatives from each tribe, they would have a meeting, and then there, were, there was a chamber of women that had to approve what the chamber of men would decide and so on. Um, but uh, I think it was the Iroquois who tried to base all their decisions on what would be beneficial seven generations in the future. And sometimes I, I, I'm struck by how we seem to be going in the opposite direction from annual profit reports to quarterly profit reports. And you know, I don't know if the, soon there will be weekly profit reports or maybe there already are, you know, trading uh, happening in nanoseconds. And it seems that our, our scope of concern for making economic decisions is becoming tighter and tighter. Is that accurate from your perspective? Uh, well, there's threads of it, uh, but there are also counter-threads, too, of people who are saying, what about future generations? What are we going to be leaving? The, the, there's yeah. a lot of muscle in uh, the uh, witnessing and the reactions to global warming. The uh, much more emphasis on uh, maintaining green spaces, on uh, you know a whole lot of things that are, in some sense, lost in thoughtless urban planning and so on, are now being resurfaced. Uh, and uh, a lot of uh, young people are saying uh, we want something that makes us feel good, not just now, um, but about the future and about what we'll be leaving behind. Yeah, it it's it's. It's inherently human. There's nothing inherently short. Now, the, within all individuals, yeah. and this is an, an element that every individual knows and every society deals with, and religions, some would argue, were set up to deal with, of short-termism versus long-terms. You need to be told not to fall into current temptations hmm. of a 
an ecstasy of the moment or something else actually denying you the possibility of doing something better and bigger and more long-lasting payday loans there's a variety of these things that um, you need and traditionally you've set up various rules of a sort you know posting the Ten Commandments is wonderful almost every religion has the golden rule as uh, number one or number two and that's for a good reason we now know that people are enormously malleable to the context uh, as so much so that in one of the Dan Ariely's ex- lab experiments people who were given an exam and asked to mark their own exam and report the mark had some slight tendency to round up in their own favor uh, not a huge tendency but about five percent on average across these uh, samples um, and if the people before they did the test were asked to remember the names of the last ten books they'd read in school or wherever they'd been uh, didn't change anything but if they were asked to remember the Ten Commandments and before they did the <laughs> test they had no tendency to mark <laughs> really so that's telling you it's yeah. that people are in fact very context dependent yeah. they understand the moral law uh, but uh, they're only human and they need to be reminded and especially since generosity does make us happier but we don't know it does. I mean, this is part of it. Because if you did know it does, here's another conundrum for you. If you did know it would make you happy, and you did it because it would make you happy, it wouldn't make you happy. <laughs> it's like the placebo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I if mean, you it, know it wouldn't it's... make you happy because you'd feel guilty for doing it. Because you're doing it for it yourself. Selfish. Yeah. So yeah. that's in some sense why we don't want to be wired to know that we will be made happy by being generous. It's nice to be made happy when we're generous, but better if we don't understand the process, because if we understand the process and think about it too much, we'll stop doing good things for other people because it looks like selfishness. Somebody who'd done an experiment like this at San Francisco airport came back to me with this puzzle, and I helped them, I hope, by saying this, look, Charles, uh, the woman you helped with her children through San Francisco airport was really happy you'd helped her. Yes, he said. She will be more likely to help other people in the future because you helped her. Yes. You felt really good about helping her through San Francisco Airport. Now, how do you think it will improve the world if you didn't help her through the airport simply because you knew it made you happier? You'd be denying yourself the happiness, but the really important point is you'd be denying her the happiness. If you really want to help other people, help other people. The fact that you get a psychological bonus for it is just a bonus. And there's some there's some very dark Victorian assumptions built into that, that, that his own happiness is somehow shameful. I mean, what's wrong with being happy? It makes you happy to help other people. More power to you. Absolutely. Um, But it then gets brought into the selfishness idea. It's your happiness. And And I think you're quite right. The right way to focus it is, let's... Make everybody happy. And since it, making yeah. them happier made you happier too, well, It's not, not a zero-sum situation, exactly. right? Um, and happiness is that way, while distribution yeah. of goods and services is much less that way. But it becomes that way, and we found this in some experiments we were doing out at SFU, uh, a variety of experiments about how people did or didn't like inequality and the outcomes of the things. Then when they were leaving the lab, we offered them a chance to donate to a charity that uh, was going to buy bed nets in Africa. 
and uh, they were enormously happier for having that opportunity and taking it up. The people who gave all the money they'd earned away were much happier than the ones who didn't. So there's an example where you actually get, got something for the people in the bed nets, and uh, they were actually happier for that uh, opportunity. Isn't your research sort of slyly revolutionary in the sense that, and maybe I'm misunderstanding, but it seems to me you're questioning the fundamental assumption of economics, which is economic man, which is that we all act in self-interest by nature. Aren't you really saying we act in one another's interest by nature? Yes. Well, I mean, I, I would regard that as evolutionary, not revolutionary. The fact that some of, at least of modern economics, has built that assumption in, but never tested it. Right? Whenever it's tested, and it is tested quite a lot in exactly. laboratory games, so-called dictator experiments, yeah. routinely people act in a co much more cooperative way than that assumption would. So instead of simply throwing away the assumption, which is the only sensible thing to do, people keep trying to find more sophisticated tip for tap <laughs> exactly. and yeah. reputation building and anticipated uh, responses mm. by others that would rationalize a purely selfish person acting so unselfishly. But why not simply open up to the reality of what human nature really is and admit that that notion of selfishness was never anything more than an assumption. It wasn't a conclusion based on evidence. But that puts you on a, 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 a collision course with some of the fundamental values of capitalism. Why? Because I think a lot of the, the difficulty in talking about these things comes down to a, a sort of capitalism versus communism, you know, Cold War mentality that, that we're still um, working under. The idea that people are inherently primed to share with one another and to take care of one another uh, echoes Marxist ideology in ways that make a lot of people uncomfortable. You know, the only book that, you know, Andrew Carnegie, one of the great early industrialists and also famous tightwad, um, the only book that he insisted had to be in every one of the li public libraries he built was on the origin of species. And I think one of the reasons, and this is where uh, evolutionary theory and economics uh, overlap, I think one of the reasons that uh, Darwinian thought is so popular among uh, a certain sort of right-wing neo-Hobbesian evolutionary psychology school is that it seems to justify selfishness. It seems to say it, nature is built this way. If you, you've got lots of money, it's because you were smarter and you worked harder. If you say, wait a minute, it's actually because you were really lucky and you were born into a, you know, a very fortunate moment and et cetera, et cetera, that subverts this notion of you know, the survival of the fittest and there's nothing wrong with that and you know, I've got mine the hell with you. You know, which, which then gets complicated by questions of scale. I'm not arguing for uh, communism, certainly. It's a failed system. But it, it, it does seem to be an institutionalization of human nature in a pre-agricultural world, to each according to his needs, from each according to their ability. That's the way hunter-gatherers live. 
But yes and no. I mean, they, they did go up and down the coast here, uh, uh, raiding each other's camps. Well, see, these aren't hunter-gatherers in this area. They, they had The thing that's interesting about the Pacific Northwest is that they had salmon runs, which functions as uh, accumulated resources. They knew when they would come and that they would come and they could uh, uh, preserve the salmon by drying it and so on. So the the Pacific Northwest, though they're sometimes called hunter-gatherers, they were actually sedentary hunter-gatherers. And as you know, they had slavery and warfare and so on. But if you look at hunter-gatherers, immediate return hunter-gatherers who don't have accumulated resource resources, you find uh, an absence of warfare, absence Absence of um, uh, oppression of women and, and all these nasty uh, effects of uh, <laughs> well, accumulated that's resources. A, uh, that's one version of evolution that once we once we get a surplus, we fight over it, and uh, there may be some element of that. The most misleadingly titled book in recent histories on this evolution is the one called "The Selfish Gene." And the argument was, uh, it, was a, it was just a view of kind of, uh, it was good to sell books, but it was enormously misleading because a lot of evolutionary biology uh, now is of the form that, uh, and it's, I mean, we've got evolutionary anthropology and evolutionary psychology and the kind of stuff that Robin Dunbar and his lab at Oxford are doing, uh, whereby, in fact, uh, they're trying to find a good evolutionary case as to why people are so unselfish. We know they're unselfish. We have lots and lots of ways of showing it. Uh, not universally and not always, um, but on average. Uh, and the question is, what is the evolutionary power of that? The yeah. notion of the Dawkins idea was that unless something is going to be evolutionarily successful, it won't survive. So the people who say you have to be selfish to survive are saying that unselfish behavior does not have an evolutionary advantage. Right. But of course, anyone who's done any study of the social sciences, which are the sciences of people working together, are uh, quickly show that they work much, much better in high trust and sharing environments. That's where they flower, and that's what they need in order to get them started. So it was the capacity to unthinkingly, naturally, and instinctively work in groups together to solve common problems that allowed some groups of human beings to keep the lions at bay and others to die. Yeah. And so the, the groups of humans who were actually pretty weak beasts in, when they Very were true. competing with strong beasts, yeah. and the only thing they had, and the part that was favored, and you could see it with the growing neocortex, was the thinking power. And the thinking power had inherently in it this pro-social component. Not in everybody, but the people who had it were the societies that survived. And so humankind, as we know it, is characterized by a high dose of this pro-social component. And that's because we are social beings who, who, who require that in order to meet what were the original uh, pressures. And to forget you have it, to pretend you don't, is to do yourself one in the eye. Exactly. 
Exactly. As you probably know, Edwin, Edwin O. Wilson is arguing now in favor of group selection, which had been ridiculed, and he's being ridiculed for it. But I think he's on the right track uh, for all the reasons you just mentioned. But I think he's being attacked because, again, it fundamentally subverts this capitalist, individualist, selfish vision of the way the world is supposed to but work. I, just, I mean, I... I, I travel around the world a lot as you do and this notion of everything being put in a capitalist communist it's a very united it's states ridiculous. notion yeah you do yeah. not find it in other countries yeah. and so the danish system that i've just been visiting it's as capitalist as anybody says right. um do they think in these terms do they think that you can't share because you're a capitalist yeah. no they understand that the workers are happier and they're happier and their shareholders are happier if they indeed share the good ideas. They share the credit for discovering some smart way of, of, of doing it. They share warm feelings with their customers when they are doing a high quality product and the customer is getting them and coming back again later. Yeah. Uh, and they've got great uh, health care for mothers. They, they support well, education. All the, it's, that's all part it's of a it. community. They, they see themselves as living in a community. Much more. And America don't. I'm, I speak as an American, and uh, America does not see itself as a community. Well, many do. I mean, this is part sure, of the issue. No, individual, it's too yeah. easy to talk blacks and whites. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the United States has many examples of, of very high-level thinking and action on building community and running communities. But when they get into, most Americans, when they get into these right-left capitalist communist kind of socialist capitalist distinctions the rest of us turn off our ears yeah. because it's 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 starting to get divorced from the reality of of human life and real organizations and yeah, off in some space that's <laughs> a adversarial rather than uh productive. Yeah. And what human beings need, in a sense, is the ability to build bridges, not to build fences. And so, at some level, we have to address the shibboleths and the beliefs of people who think it's all my way or the doorway and say, well, not really. Uh, we have to learn to collaborate in a, in a more effective way and take seriously people who we think uh, are just because they're different from us or have got it wrong. Well, we're out of time, and that seems like a, a beautiful statement to end on. So thank you very much for doing this. Uh, I'm sure this will be very enlightening for, for our listeners. It was fun. Nice talking to you. You said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever know Said it for a headstone Soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up again
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.